1: Today, we have the opportunity to talk about uh, an old issue that's been made new again in our society. Uh, this is the topic of uh, right-wing extremism and right-wing malicious uh, in American society. They've been with us uh, since the beginning of our democracy, and they've risen and fallen in different periods, and we're quite obviously living through a period now uh, when these right-wing groups have spread in number and spread in their public presence within our society. We have with us one of the foremost scholars who's uh, studying the history of uh, right wing activism and right wing militias in our society and also looking very closely at how that history matters for our world today. This is, of course, uh, Augusta Delomo. Uh, Augusta, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy and Zach.
1: Augusta is a PhD candidate finishing a startling and groundbreaking dissertation on the connections between right-wing activists in the United States, South Africa, and other societies uh, during the 1970s and 80s. Um, She is also very active in writing about these issues and contemporary issues throughout our society. She's written for the Washington Post. She's appeared on CNN. Uh, She's been the producer of two podcasts uh, that have covered these issues, a 15-minute history, and an ongoing podcast called Right Rising. And uh, she's had various uh, academic honors and positions that she's uh, occupied, the most important of which I would like to say is that uh, she's one of my PhD students. Uh, <laughs> though oftentimes, oftentimes it, it feels like I'm her student, and that's the way it should be. Uh, so, so Augusta, we're really happy to have, have you on. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Augusta, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's scene setting poem. Uh, Zachary, what is your poem, poem and title today?
2: Aron, Greidinger, and I survived. All right, let's hear about uh, Aron
1: and how you survived.
2: Aron, Greidinger, and I survived. The barber spoke to him with glee of the murderers, staring at them from across the border, spoke to him with glee of the grotesque caricature and the conspiracy. And now, now he has resigned his resistance. He will stay. Warsaw will still keep him to treasure the few moments of anonymity and the unaccented grunts in the barber chair before he is murdered in a courtyard. But no, we see him years later in a seaside restaurant in Tel Aviv, staring out at the Mediterranean with an old friend. And no, the streets did not take his last breath, but he saw them die in the fog of fogless war. And it too is an aching feeling walking the red brick steps of the campus in a boiling August afternoon. The same streets the radio spoke of and the torchbearers marched on are now the same streets where you pick up a sandwich, you, Jewish American, in the sandwich shop one year later. And you bear the soda pop paper cup back to the car like a scepter and ride with it south between the mountains to wake up in Chattanooga with the same cup and stare out over the hills from the parking
1: garage roof. Oh... The resilience of time. That's a very thoughtful poem, Zachary. What is your poem about? Well, my poem really
2: uh, takes this character, Aron Greidinger, from a novel by Isaac Bashevis Singer and uh, uh, my experience visiting Charlottesville uh, after the marches there in 2017. And I um, I it was really trying to point out uh, the recurrence of right-wing violence, but also uh, how it, in the end it always it always loses and it always fails to achieve the sort of hate-filled goals.
1: I, I like that optimistic conclusion. Uh, before we get to that and and decipher whether that's an accurate conclusion or not, uh, Augusta, how do we understand the rise of uh, right-wing movements in our society today and, and are there historical parallels?
0: Mm. Jeremy, I think that's a, a great first question. And Zach, I'm I'm really glad that you started with this poem to start, because one of the most difficult things, at least that I struggle with as a scholar, is how important it is to study right-wing violence and right-wing individuals who are committed to terror, to acts of violence, to overthrowing governments, white supremacy, anti-Semitism. But at times, I think we lose the people that they're really that they're really talking about, right? This disproportionate focus at times on groups like the Proud Boys, the Boogaloos. It's important to understand them, but it's even more important to remember what that violence makes people feel. So Zach, I wanted to say at the start that I'm really glad that we went this direction with your poem today. And Jeremy, your question is important. There have always been, as you said at the outset, right-wing violent movements in this country starting from the very beginning The wave that I focus on in the 1980s and 1990s has been highlighted by scholars who refer to this as the militia phase in which organizations were deeply committed to overthrowing the U.S. government, were committed to working outside the law to institute their ideas of of what a new state could look like. In my case, I specifically focus on ones that were invested in preserving the white-ruled state of South Africa. but the premises of white supremacy in many cases undergird a lot of the movements that you've seen. And it becomes very difficult to separate out the different divisions, the different goals within these movements. And it's critical to understand how they've originated in these different cases. In the case that I look at in the 80s and the case that we're seeing now, I would argue that there were two factors driving both of these. The first being the perceived successes of Black people, women, minorities in this country, uh, and the subsequent response. So, in the 1980s, you're coming off the successes of the civil rights movement in the United States and global decolonization after World War II. And I would argue a major driver of the kind of violence we've seen now is a reaction to the election of Barack Obama in 2008. So, you have that as one factor. And then the second is a view of traditional conservatism that needs to be changed. So in the case of the 1980s, the members of the pro-apartheid movement, as I call them, that I study, saw themselves as being the true the true holders of right-wing ideals and that the administration under Ronald Reagan was not conservative enough, was not committed enough to white supremacy. And I think you see a similar case uh, of what's going on in the Republican Party now. We can talk about differences in the party's reaction, but Right-wing militias see themselves as the true vanguards of right-wing ideology, violence, uh, the relationship, the proper relationship of the state, the proper place of women and minorities in this country that those are the kind of two forces that they're really responding to. And someone like Donald Trump that really caters to them and encourages their violence and ideology, that's only increased the ability of these groups to network, to form connections, to hold rallies, to infiltrate law enforcement. These are all things that are deeply concerning to scholars who work on this. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't think I'll be too, too optimistic for you both today.
1: So, that's a fantastic foundation historically for understanding where we are today. Uh, One of the more controversial topics is the one you closed on, the um, connections between leaders, uh, elected leaders like a Donald Trump uh, and uh, these movements. One could go back in time to look also at Confederate leaders and uh, Dixiecrats, uh, the Strom Thurmond's and the George Wallace's, uh, but but focusing on Donald Trump, uh, to what extent uh, and how do we know? that Donald Trump's uh, time in the presidency which is coming to an end thankfully that his time in the presidency has contributed and how has it contributed to the the rise and spread of these groups
0: well i think it's the most important part is the the part you first said right like how do we know that Donald Trump has contributed because it's a fair argument right there because one of the really complicating factors is there are certain right-wing violent groups that do not see themselves as aligned with someone like Donald Trump right They are so anti-state. They are so anti-US government that they view Donald Trump, probably rightly so, as someone that's just catering to these ideas without actually being truly committed to the kind of violent overthrow that they want. So that is one camp. But then you also have a second camp, and you can see this in if you choose to spend your time on 4chan or 8chan or even parts of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, the way that they talk about Donald Trump as some kind of savior figure to them, that he is going to be the one that's leading that fight. It's really enabled their ideology to go to a different level than maybe something that we hadn't seen before. I think one of the most disturbing, um, Patterns that we can identify is when Donald Trump attacks a particular figure. I'm specifically thinking about Governor Whitmer in Michigan and the subsequent plot by right wing militia to kidnap her. And um, I don't really want to go too far down the line of the potential things that could have happened in that scenario. But you see a real correlation between individuals that Donald Trump attacks and a subsequent you know, response from right-wing militias also talking about these individuals, talking about plots. There was the the incident when Donald Trump told the Proud Boys to, to stay ready. You saw on Proud Boys forums that they were excited about this, that they made t-shirts, that they branded this, that they sent it around on their Twitch streams. They talk about Donald Trump, that his influence in these groups should not be underestimated. And then if you even diverge a little bit further and start thinking about groups like QAnon, Their ideology has really shifted to be very Donald Trump centric. And so his influence on these movements is is undeniable. Um, But it becomes very difficult, especially now that we're moving out of the Trump presidency. It's going to be a real shift for these groups that in many cases have welded themselves very tightly towards Trump and his uh, position, his policies, the way that he looks at the world. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how these groups shift and how they respond. And right now, the response seems to be he didn't actually lose.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you you give a lot of examples there of the ways in which he triggers and inspires and legitimizes these these groups. Uh, what about the legal and policy structure? Are there actions that have been taken in the last four years by the executive? Uh, and his supporters that have actually, as policy matters, made it easier for these groups to thrive?
0: Uh, I think there's two big ones that I would say. First is the very explicit crackdown in the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI against labeling white supremacist violence, right-wing terror as the single greatest terror threat to this country. It is undisputed by terrorist uh, experts. It's undisputed by think tanks. It's even undisputed by members of DHS and the FBI. The FBI director has come out and said, this is the single greatest terror threat facing our country, that this is the issue right but the Trump administration really tried over the past 4 years to crack down internally on those studies prevent them from being published prevent funding from being redirected away from things like thinking about ISIS or islamic terrorism to really focusing on the the true terrorist problem in this country which is right wing violence so that i would say is the biggest policy implication is Really trying to prevent law enforcement from taking a, a really hard look at these organizations. And from what we know, I mentioned the Whitmer plot earlier, is the reason that was uncovered was because of FBI infiltration within these groups. And if that's not considered a priority from the administration, it becomes very difficult for those kinds of operations to be successful. One of the original reasons that the militia wave in the 1990s really went away was because of significant law enforcement intervention to these groups. And I think that's been one of the most alarming things from people who study this full-time, is if you have an administration not taking this threat seriously and actively preventing law enforcement from dealing with white supremacist violence, there's no way that you know it's going to be something that local law enforcement can be expected to handle. And that attitude has really turned into something that, especially with state and local law enforcement, they know who a lot of these people are, but are not being educated about the seriousness of this issue. So I think that's one category of the real, I would say... uh, collaborationist effort. Um, I wouldn't say that they're in conversation, but the Trump administration's efforts are undoubtedly helping in that respect. The second I would say is, honestly, many of the anti-immigration policies of the Trump administration, I'm thinking particularly of, of Stephen Miller and other people in that administration, that has really provided legitimacy for these groups. Is This is our guy that's really clamping down on The way that this country is changing to be less white, uh, to be more liberal, that those two policies together have created something where, as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, how do they see their relationship with this person? I think those two things combined have have really encouraged the kind of relationship that is very disturbing between the administration um, and these right wing groups.
2: Yeah, so. Uh, to think about like how these groups are portrayed in the media, um, Mm -hmm. like we often see like on places like Fox News, a sort of effort, as you said, to deflect from attention on right wing violence and move towards left wing violence. Could you maybe talk about the difference between the two, the structural differences between left wing terror and right wing terror?
0: That's a great question, Zach. And I think that that has been, if you wanted to point to one of the single greatest frustrations for people who study right-wing violence, it's that, right? It's the somehow both sides equivalency of right-wing violence and left-wing violence as being the same. There are undoubtedly acts of left-wing violence, broadly speaking, right? You've, you've seen videos of protesting where, you know, you have sort of Proud Boys clashing with Antifa, right? We've all seen those videos on Twitter. We've seen them on Fox News, as you've said, Zach, but what that violence actually looks like in practice when we talk about right wing extremism is fundamentally different in terms of the scale of the operations, the likelihood of violent terrorism. It's, it's not even close, right? If we think about Christchurch, if we think about, you know, Dylan Roof, like if we think about the individuals who are committing actual acts of terror in this country, it is no question right wing terrorism. And I think, a lot of this stems from, right? It's a sort of top-down problem. If you have an administration saying that this is not a problem, it becomes very difficult to hold public uh, discourse and hold organizations like Fox News accountable for the way that they portray that these individuals are acting. Um, You have the Trump administration and various members of the Republican Party tweeting about how conservatives are being attacked in the streets. And again, trying to promote these false equivalency narratives between right-wing and left-wing violence. But the structure of what right-wing violence looks like is far more sophisticated. It is far more deadly than the left-wing violence, which is, from everything that I have seen, very small scale, very isolated towards counter-mobilization, meaning that if there's some sort of right-wing attack, there seems to be a left-wing response in some cases. But that's very different than the acts of terror, the kidnapping plots that we have seen that these right-wing groups are very capable of.
1: Uh, Augusta who is drawn to these groups uh, and and is it different now from what you've seen historically or is there is there a similar pattern
0: it's a it's a tough question one of the most difficult parts of studying these groups I, I believe when I was on this is democracy in, in the past Zach asked me how many people are we talking about and it's the same answer right we don't really know because these groups have a lot of incentive to disguise the way that they operate, disguise their members, they want to appear more powerful than they are. But I do think that there are a couple of things that we can say. Um, and I'll start with the things that we know are not true. First, I think there's a stereotype that these are people that are poor white people who are, you know, they don't know what's going on. If only they've been informed, they're just backwards. They're from the South, right? That That's kind of the image that we have. First of all, white right-wing, white supremacist violence in this country is very widespread across geographic regions, right? There's hotspots in Portland. There's hotspots in Michigan, right? This is not a, quote-unquote, southern problem. It is a widespread movement. It does typically, in terms of militias, um, if we're talking about militias, there is you know, a strong correlation with people who have served, who have law enforcement experience. We do know that these groups really encourage their members to, um, Enter the military, enter law enforcement to get specialized training. So there are potential links there with disaffected members of the military or law enforcement that see themselves as, you know, the state has let them down. In terms of online activity, again, it's a broader spectrum, but is mostly geared younger groups like incels are typically younger men. Proud Boys are typically men between the ages of, you know, 20 and 40. That it is very male centric. It is Geared towards younger men, I think. Also, one of the stereotypes is these men are, you know, in their in their homes, just on the computer, and that's not true as well. But it's also important to take into account what the female forms of right wing violence look like. Um, these are women that are focused on traditional roles. There's a lot of discussion on people on people who study right-wing extremism talk about things like Tradwives. QAnon is very dominated by women. Um, and that's kind of steers across the board of younger and older. Um, but it is, it is very white. I think that that is one of the main, one of the main determinants at this point that we can say in in this country, right, Right right-wing extremism in other countries looks very different, but in the U S it is very white. Um, it is still very male heavy in terms of militias. Um, But it's not just confined to the South. This is a national problem. Um, And it's people across socioeconomic classes. It's not just, quote unquote, poor white people who don't understand how the country works or feel repressed by economic policies. It's a broad spectrum of people.
1: And uh, a number of scholars uh, like Kathleen Bilow and others have, have drawn a connection between these groups and uh, those who have served in the military, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam in the past. Uh, is, there, is there such a connection?
0: Oh yeah, I completely agree with with Kathleen's take on this. Uh, Bring the War Home, which is her book is is a really was a really important and I think uncomfortable book for a lot of people because you know the way that Kathleen talks about this is members of the US military who felt disaffected by what happened in Vietnam returned and became kind of the instigators of militia groups and one of the the trends that you can see and this is something that the FBI has noted and the Department of Homeland Security has noted is that they are particularly concerned about collaboration between local law enforcement and white supremacist groups. Um, The military is a little bit of a different case because while there are increasing numbers of white nationalist activity, increasing incidents, increasing numbers of military members um, that are engaging in this kind of activity are members of right-wing extremist groups, the military's response, I would say, has been very different than local law enforcement. I would not say the military's response has been sufficient, but there is a more um, intentional program of trying to root out this violence to try and prevent these people from joining versus local law enforcement. It becomes much more difficult to root out exactly who is collaborating, what it looks like. And there's been You know, the legacy of that, I would argue, goes back to Jim Crow, the kind of collaboration between KKK and local law enforcement that that connection has always existed. And it becomes very difficult, particularly for the FBI when they're working on domestic terrorism. There's actually been reporting about that they are uncomfortable and nervous when partnering with local law enforcement about the kinds of collaboration that you can see with right wing extremism.
1: Right. And and it should be said uh, that this has a long uh, tradition, unfortunately, in American history of local law enforcement uh, collaborating with uh, local lynching mobs, right. uh, local paramilitary groups. Uh, quite often, the members who are the leaders of the local uh, militias are themselves also lo- in law enforcement in their local communities.
0: Right. It's uh, it, not, you
1: know, not to criticize police in general, but it is to say that's been present in our history.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not to you know go full historian on all of our listeners here, but everything has a history in this respect, it, particularly in terms of right wing militia violence. Like you said, Jeremy, this has been a long history of collaboration between police and the and violent right-wing activity, especially going back to Jim Crow. I think one of the most disturbing aspects that we see now um, is the online component, which becomes far more difficult when we talk about what does it mean to combat these groups? The online dimension, I think, is the most challenging and the most difficult in terms of what would actually rooting out these organizations look like in practice.
1: Right, right. To, to, to what extent, Augusta, does this picture you've painted for us in such important detail, to what extent is it an international picture? I mean, one of the really pioneering parts of your research is to look at these issues in an international frame and connections across borders. Uh, are we living through an international moment of right-wing extremism, and what elements of this are, are specific to the U.S., perhaps?
0: Mm, I would say we are full stop li- listen, living in this period. Um, I think- one of the most important aspects of how scholars are looking at right-wing extremism today, that as you said, my dissertation also takes this global view, but that has not always been the traditional lens, right? Right Right-wing activism is traditionally viewed very domestically. And a lot of scholars working on right-wing extremism today recognize that the success of these groups, the way that they communicate with each other is actually quite international and quite global. Again, getting at some of the stereotypes that they're backward, that they're you know, very inward looking, that's true in some respects, but in how they are communicating with each other, the ways that they raise money, the ways that they spread their ideology is very global. And one of the things that I'm most excited about in terms of the way that we are finally thinking about these groups is it's no longer just focused on what's happening in the U S and what's happening in Europe. Again, Europe has been experiencing similar trends and growing right-wing violence since, you know, 2016. But scholars are really starting to finally globalize this and think about what's happening in India, what's happening in Africa, what's happening in Latin America, that there is right-wing extremism growing. And what does it mean when right-wing extremism is moving away from the kind of racial lens that if we're talking about the U.S. specifically, U.S., European, in my case in what I study, South African right-wing violence is inherently rooted in white supremacy. That is the way that they approach the issues that I work on. I would argue that that is the reason that we have seen so much violence um, is it's white supremacist violence at its core. And The way, once we start expanding, though, and talking about right-wing extremism, when we get to cases like India, when we talk about Brazil, it becomes more complicated in the kinds of local grievances and how they intersect with wider international visions of what a a right-wing world looks like. So it's important to both recognize the local particularities of what's going on, but you also see a real sharing of ideas, you see shared symbols, you see shared tactics. That that kind of collaboration is not new, but it feels really new because of things like the internet, the speed at which it happens. You know, Germany saw their first QAnon rallies this you know a couple months ago. You're seeing the way that Donald Trump is really popular in some parts of the world that you know that those kind of international links are very real. And I would argue it's very important for all of the listeners to think about right-wing violence, not as just an American problem. It is an American problem, but it's also a global problem. in a real counter-response to what is the perceived more liberalizing world, a perceived more globalizing world, a perceived more equitable world, that the forces that are not interested in those things, that are committed to authoritarianism and violence, that they don't go away. They, they find new ways to connect. They find new ways to push their influence.
1: Right. It, it's almost as if the uh, the, the trends toward globalism uh, create and inspire an equally powerful counter reaction, which is, which is what 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 you're describing across the globe with its own particularities in different societies. Uh, we, we have a long history, obviously, Augusta, of, of dealing with these kinds of movements internationally and domestically. Uh, what has worked and what should we do?
0: I think the first thing that I would say that we have to do, and this makes me, I suppose, a little, you know, I'm, I'm flirting with saying that the First Amendment has some problems, but I think we need to really clamp down on the kinds of ways that we talk about these groups and what's acceptable in public discourse. One of the things that I uncovered in my research was how there were significant divisions within the Republican Party over how they should respond to apartheid South Africa, but many members of the Republican Party were deeply abhorrent of what was going on in South Africa and were not interested in engaging in the pro-apartheid rhetoric pushed by more right-wing members. And you saw a really significant response from members of the Republican Party to curtail what they were going to say about South Africa. So I'm thinking about people like George Schultz who wanted to work with the South Africans in order to increase regional security, but was not going to appear in Congress and talk about how apartheid actually wasn't that bad, which was what people like Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms did. So in this case, in our contemporary moment, you're not seeing that same kind of response from Republicans across the board. You're not seeing a disavowal of right-wing violence. You're seeing what Zach pointed out of it's just as much on the left, right? You're seeing that both sides is, them. you're seeing that they're really allowing these groups to, you know, they're catering to them, having QAnon members of Congress, right? All of these things are connected and that some ideas do not deserve breathing room in public forums in our society. Um, and we need to do better, I think, preventing those ideas from being discussed. And we have to shut down and recreate what are the parameters of acceptable discourse? What are the parameters of acceptable policies? And when you have a party that is not invested in doing that, it worries me to a degree that I i don't even know how you begin to put that back in the box, right? Because this is a level of collaborationism and... Um, shared rhetoric about certain things, enabling on other issues that, you know, if you have a a presidential then candidate, now soon to be former president saying, invoking the Proud Boys, telling them to, to stand by and stand ready, right? All of that has implications. And so we're really relying here on the members of the Republican Party cutting that down. But what we've seen over the past few weeks is Fox News, if we want to take the example of what's happened with soon to be former President Trump, that he lost the election and Fox news has said he has lost the election. And you have seen right-wing groups, right-wing militias, right-wing violent groups infuriated with Fox news for trying to say, no, that's not true. These are the acceptable barriers, that there's going to be a real reaction to this. So I think that that is, that is what has to happen is we have to find ways To push these groups out of the mainstream, but they're not gonna go quietly. They've had too much time, they've had too much airspace, and they're not gonna wanna go. So I think we have to stop giving them attention. I think we have to stop, particularly in terms of it's gotten better, but I think it could be even better, doing these sort of very flattering portfolios from journalists talking about, you know, the alt-right or whatever. We have to call them what they are, which is right-wing violent extremists, right? So I think naming them is important. I think calling it out is important, and I think reestablishing acceptable barriers about where these groups are allowed to operate. They're always going to exist, right? Right Right-wing rhetoric, right, far-right ideology, those things, we can never fully get rid of them, I'm convinced. But we can prevent them from influencing civil discourse and prevent them from having the role and the weight that they do now.
1: It, it's it's such a great point you've made, and it's something we've learned uh, with the, the long history of anti semitism, which is that y- you can't put the genie back in the bottle, as you said, um, but you can have firm public policies and firm public uh, discourse uh, aimed at renouncing uh, these organizations, aimed at informing people about the horrible things they do, preventing any kind of glorification of their activities or any kind of apology for their activities. It's it's a combination of public renunciation from respected figures across uh, all sorts of areas, and law enforcement where appropriate when laws are broken. Uh, people should not be able to get away with laws, and they shouldn't be diminished in the level of their crimes um, because people don't take these these things seriously. I think I think your your point about serious public commitment and public attention and not glorification, it's, it's really important, Augusta. And your research is, is the foundation for that. It's understanding these organizations for who they are that allows us to Really renounce them rather than ignore them or glorify them, which is what's happened quite often in the past. Uh, Zachary, uh, you you as a as a politically aware young person, watch all this, and I know you talk about it with some of your friends. I know you have some friends who once in a while go to some of these uh, websites. Uh, What do you think is most effective today, especially for your generation, that in some ways is the generation, as Augusta is speaking, that's going to have to set a public mark against these organizations, but also a generation that's vulnerable, vulnerable to their websites and their propaganda? How how do you think about this, Zachary?
2: Well, I definitely think that's a good point. I think once you get down that rabbit hole, it it very quickly it very quickly become something much bigger than just one website or or one opinion. So I think that one of the things we need to do is educate people about where the where we draw the line between acceptable civil discourse and unacceptable discourse. And we really need to educate people too about what are reliable sources and what are not reliable sources. I think our our internet education has really just been sort of like go do it yourself, which I think at the moment is is really failing my generation.
1: And Augusta, you're not as optimistic as Zachary and I are about this. Why not?
0: I think there's certain aspects that I am more optimistic about than others. I think in terms of violence and acts of terrorism, based on what we've seen from previous waves of right-wing violence, particularly the 1990s wave, I am more optimistic about the capacity of federal local intervention to clamp down on these groups if given the proper resources and directive from the incoming Biden administration, which I would be surprised if they did not. I feel more optimistic about that. But as Zach pointed out, you know, I like the genie in the bottle analogy. I'm not sure how we reestablish norms about what is acceptable and what are acceptable ideas. Because like Zach said, this kind of look for it yourself, do it yourself, find it yourself mentality has really permeated right-wing extremist thought across the board. You know, don't listen to mainstream news. It's full of lies. And any evidence that you're given as proof that your beliefs are wrong just becomes reintegrated into your ideas about what you know, whatever belief system that you have. So that's when it becomes very difficult with things like QAnon, um, things with these militia groups that it, you know, they talk a lot in terrorism studies about creating counter narratives, creating alternative narratives to help pull people out. The data is very mixed about if that works. So that's what I this is what keeps me up at night is how do we how do we get people out of that? I don't know. I don't know how you move people out of these systems. I don't know how you recreate a set of norms in this society around truth, because there are such strong incentives for one political party to not do that. Right. The only reason they've continued to be successful, I would argue, particularly this past year, is because they have just fully pushed into lies, pushed into, you know, the way the president talks about certain things that that success that he's found is not going to go away. He may leave, right? But other people may look at this and say, you know, he got away fine with just lying and invoking right-wing violence. I can do that, right? I'm I'm nervous about what a post-Trump world looks like. And so I I don't know how it's going to go. I don't think that they're going to go sort of quietly into the night. I think the kind of violence that we've seen, the sort of visible protesting, I, I think it could kind of go either way if that continues or it retreats. But the way that our relationship to information has changed, I think that that's fundamental. I don't know if we can we can fix that. And so that's what's scariest for me. Um, and I and I think that's where it really falls on people like you, people like me, people like Zach, to hold our communities accountable and say, what you're reading isn't right. And let's talk about it. And let's work through this. because. All of us know somebody that even if right, we don't all know people that are wing malicious, but we all know people who are sending us things on Reddit that are like, this is true. And it's like, no, it's not right. It's, it's, it's all of our responsibility to recreate norms about what our world should look like. Um, so it's scary. And I, I'm hopeful about certain things. And I'm also very scared about others.
1: Yes. It's a perfect note to, to close on. Uh, these are incredibly difficult issues, and it is very, very hard to convince people uh, who believe in conspiracy theories and white supremacist ideas uh, for all kinds of reasons. It's very hard to convince them. Otherwise, we like to think we can sit down at the dinner table with them and reason them out of these positions, but we can't. Uh, it's, it's incumbent on, on all of us to do a lot more, and that's really what this podcast is about. It's incumbent on us to create a public dialogue that um, really rewards people for being truthful, not always agreeing with the things we personally agree with, but being truthful and being accountable to basic ideas of civility that are at the foundation of any democracy, truth and civility, and uh, calling people out, even if we can't convince them, calling them out uh, for misbehavior, for lies, mm-hmm. uh, for racism, for yeah. violence. And uh, I, think that, I think that.
0: that's so yeah. important, right? It's not. It's not with the intention to convert them back to the way that we think, it's to reestablish what people should be able to say. I think that's such a great point that you made. It's not. It's about saying, this is our democracy, right? This is our world, and we're not going to allow you to just say these things unchallenged. I think that's a great way to put it.
1: And it's something you've taught me in your research, and you've shared uh, so beautifully with our listeners today. Uh, Our podcast embodies exactly what you just said. Uh, It's not about uh, trying to convert the world overnight. But it's about trying to remind us all of what we believe in, who we are, what our values are, and what the crucial values are for a democracy that we all need to defend and defend vocally uh, every single day. Augusta, thank you for your work doing that every day uh, as a scholar, as a, as a public intellectual, as a citizen. I think you're a model for what you, what you describe. Thank you, Zachary, for your uh, motivating, uh, inspiring, insightful poem, as always. And thank you most of all to our listeners uh, who care deeply about these issues and who are are the, the future of our democracy in so many ways. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts
2: Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.